0: Old, I mean, really old. And uh, Zola, what's happening here? That was tremendous. Thank you very much. We love our youth. We really appreciate you, like your hand? Thank you. <laughs> chapter one, and then Genesis chapter three, but Matthew chapter one. And today is the first part of, uh, of really a three-part series around the whole theme of shame. And this really emerged out of uh, just studying the whole Christmas gospel stories of the birth of Jesus and really was struck a few weeks ago by the whole surrounding atmosphere of shame. And I've thought on and off about it over the last few years, but uh, it's a very profound, significant topic. Uh, and so we're gonna end the service by hopefully giving you a gift. And having some opportunity to be anointed with oil uh, for healing, uh, because for freedom and to be the person God's called you to be really requires getting a grasp of this issue and getting set free from it. Some folks are under-shamed, some are over-shamed. Most are confused. And uh, it's the heart of the gospel to set us all free. So let's pray, let's commit our time to the Lord. And every year, most people miss Christmas. Most people, I, I think I did for years, even as a believer. It's so easy to miss him on Christmas. In some ways, some of our spiritual lives go downhill versus uphill around the holidays. Now, there's two significant holidays in the church calendar throughout the world, the church Christian church calendar. It's the incarnation, Christmas. We celebrate who Jesus is and his birth. And the second is the Easter uh, events and the resurrection of Christ and uh, what he's done for us. And it's, it's very important that we not get swept away by the busyness the intensity, our obligations to extended family, present business, all that stuff, and we miss him, just as most did when God entered the war, world through the baby Jesus. Let's commit our time to the Lord, and that God might meet us. Father, we thank you for the freedom of David as he danced, as we just sang about, and Lord, to not care, to be really himself before you. And Father, many of us have, all of us have been affected by what people think, by shame, by issues that are so deep that they're even difficult to look at. And I pray, Father, today that the real meaning of Christmas, at least one aspect of it, would burst into our souls. And Father, you might set us free in a fresh way to the beauty and the power and the wonder of the gospel in Jesus and the good, good, great news. Of you having come and visited this planet through Jesus. So, Lord, we offer this time to you. Speak to us through your word and equip us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philip Yancey wrote this about Christmas. Christmas is about the God who came to earth not in a raging whirlwind, nor in a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things, he shrank down, down down so small as to become an ovum a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye an egg that would divide and redivide until a fetus took shape enlarging cell by cell inside a nervous teenager the God who roared the God who could order armies and empires like pawns on a chessboard this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder a God who depended now on a teenager for shelter food and love now that's how God chose, of all the ways God could have chose to enter human history, and of all the times in history when God could have come, that's how God chose to enter. Now, I just contrast this to a report that some reporters made about when Queen Elizabeth last came to America. The second, uh, when she came, uh, it cost twenty million dollars when she arrived. She visited. She had four thousand pounds of luggage. She had two outfits for every occasion and one outfit just in case somebody died. She had 40 pints of plasma in case she got sick. She had white kid leather toilet seat covers to make sure everything was cleanly. And she brought her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants when she came. When God came, it was very different. Now, when God visited Earth, it took place in an animal shelter. In fact, there was probably more animals there than people. I mean, a mule could have stepped on him. Now, Matthew, when he opens the New Testament, if you look at the verse 1-1, if I was Matthew and I was writing the New Testament, this is the opening line of the Bible, I would have said, this book will change your life. But rather, what Matthew writes is, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You say, what is that? And if you read the genealogy, he opens the book and he talks all about shame. And because this is the family tree of Jesus. And if you've ever done your family tree, you've seen family trees in history, you basically try to skip the bad parts. And you want to keep the good parts of your family tree. And so Jewish people, when they did their family tree in the times of Jesus, you did not include women, and you did not include uh, any kind of thing that would mix your blood with Gentiles at all. But this family tree, if you were a Jewish person reading in the first century, you would be aghast because it's filled with people that would bring shame on God having entered the human race. And for example, there's four women. Again, women wouldn't be included, but women are included here. And each of these four women um, are scandalous to a different degree. The first is mentioned in verse, uh, I think it's three, where it's mentioned a woman named Tamar. And Tamar played a prostitute to, to trick her father-in-law, and she gets pregnant. And that fruit of that union was one of the great, 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 great um, grandfathers of Jesus. And next woman mentioned is, is, Rahab, is uh, Rahab, who was known as a prostitute in Joshua. And uh, she's one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of, of Jesus. And then Ruth is mentioned here, I think it's in verse 5 or 6. And Ruth was a Moabite, another Gentile. And uh, the Moabites, they, they were descendants of Lot. And uh, there's from Lot had sex with his daughter, incest, out of which came the whole people of the Moabites. And Ruth was one of them. And Ruth was the literal great-grandmother of David and the, again, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother great of Jesus, one of those greats up there, you know. So that was part of his, law, his family tree as well. And the last woman mentioned was so scandalous in verse uh, 6 that they didn't even, couldn't even say her name, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. As you know, uh, you know adultery, uh, not the lawful wife of David, out of which came Solomon. And again, we've got another great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. And the point is, if I, I didn't even go into the men's names, people like Manasseh, who was, if you know any of the Old Testament, one of the kings of Israel, again, in the bloodline of Jesus, that was a horrible idolater. He, he was involved in witchcraft, divination, sorcery, and he's one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers. And the point is that this, this genealogy is filled with interracial, intercultural, different races, culture, all mixed in the bloodline of Jesus. And the author is making a point, and he's making a point about, uh, about shame. Now, then he goes on in chapter, verse 18. Read it with me just for a minute. And this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace or shame, he, he, uh, hid in his ma- he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. Now, in the United States today, over a million teenagers get pregnant out of wedlock. And we, you know, we tend to not think much of it. But in a tight-knit Jewish community, in you know, the first century, uh, for a Jewish girl to get pregnant was punishable by death, by stoning. So if some of you have ever been in a small town, you know the intensity of, of the pressure of that. And Mary was in that when she got pregnant. And um, uh, you can imagine nine months as her her womb is growing, to, trying to explain you know, the awkwardness of explaining what happened. You can imagine the rumors flying around the neighborhood and the scandal. And then for Jesus to be raised in Nazareth, and you know in small towns, gossip is intense. And you can imagine the stuff being said about who was this guy's father? And uh, Jesus really was, a, was we would call today, he was a mistake. I mean, Mary was poor, uneducated, uh, didn't know who the father was, again, from the outside. Uh, she's saying that, well, the Holy Ghost is the one who birthed his child. I mean, we would correct that mistake today and probably would abort the baby immediately. And, uh, but God arranged circumstances in such a way that there was like shame all over this entrance into human history. And then the account actually flaunts it because, friends, in fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, not just his entrance into the world is filled with shame. The Bible says that through his life and suffering was marked by shame. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. And then his crucifixion was was a horrible, shameful event. And and, and because the gospel is about God in Christ enduring, bearing, entering shame in order to deliver us from shame that's on all of us and to set us free. It's very similar to the series in The Prodigal Son, where the father shamed himself first as he ran to the son and his toga was up. And we talked about, if you remember, how that was a shameful thing for a. For a father to do in ancient times to run to his son and how his toga was up, his underwear be showing, but the father didn't care. He shamed himself to cover the shame of the son and to set his son free. And so the heart of the gospel, and and I believe the extent to which we understand shame, is the extent to which we understand the depth of the gospel and the love of God for us. And so the theme is not a minor one. It's a major one. And so today I'm going to break it up into two simple parts, this message. Uh, understanding shame, what it's about. I'm going to kind of give you some broad strokes. There's more I'll say in the next couple of weeks, but some broad strokes of what the shame thing is, and then how does grace and the incarnation and that whole thing or we're about this Christmas season, how does God heal our shame and set us free to be the men, the women he's called us to be? All right, so why don't you put it up there? We'll do the first point here, just understanding shame. All right, go to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall. You know, what's the origin of shame? It really goes back to sin in the garden and the entrance of evil. But if you think about it, the reason we dress is because we sin. And we sinned. And clothing is like the striped suit of a jailbird. And it's a reminder to all of us that we're hiding from God and each other. Now, in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6, remember that God set it up that Adam and Eve as our first parents were representing us and, and uh, were not to eat from this particular tree in the garden. And it was symbolic of their commitment to depend on God, trust in his word, believe that God is good. But the serpent come, the temptation came to disobey, and here's what happens in verse 6. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. I'm in verse six and also desirable for gaining wisdom so she took some and she ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid and then the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man where are you? and he answered I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid now shame has to do with this traumatic feeling of exposure, of, of, of nakedness, and for Adam and Eve here, the, 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 their rebellion against God brought immediate consequences. Their, their relationship with God was now wrecked. Now, instead of running to the presence of God, they wanted to run away from God. Don't want to get in his presence. Don't want to get too near worship the word. God is the Holy Spirit. They're running away. They're hiding, and then their relationship with each other is now the marriage is no longer joyful, intimate, open. Now, it's full of you know, assumptions, blaming, lies, pretending the marriage is now broken up, and then inside of themselves they're divided. They're feeling ugly. They're feeling shame. They're feeling embarrassment. They're feeling guilt. They're all mixed up on the inside, and you've got a big mess. Adam's now a coward, a blamer, a liar. He's self, he's self-protective, defending himself. Eve's a mess, and uh, but shame is all over them at this point. Now shame. Most of us. Uh, I mean, some of us are aware of shame a lot. Others of us are often unconscious that it's even going on. You know, it looks something like this, for example. Like, say I'm, I'm, I'm out with my children at a friend's house, and one of my children is acting up. And I'm, I'm feeling social shame because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but the real issue is, is, what do other people think of me now that my child is misbehaving? And so rather than uses as a a moment of discipling or disciplining my own child it overshadows that because the shame is now controlling me and how I'm going to respond to this incident. But what's controlling me really in the whole situation is shame. Or um, you know have you ever been in a room full of people and everybody knows something that you know they know a lot about whatever it is is meaningful and you know you don't know a lot and you just kind of shut your mouth because you feel stupid and it's shame so you're you're not yourself you're kind of like hiding you're just you're embarrassed even being there. Or sometimes you know you don't have the education some other people do, maybe, again, whatever level or amount of education. You haven't finished high school, or college, or master's, or PhD, or postdoctorate, whatever it is. But you're with some people, and you just feel like, I just don't have the education they do, and I feel shame. And so rather than participate as a full participant, you're really carrying shame, and you pull back. Or uh, have you ever been in a situation where you don't want to give your opinion because you have in the past, and when you have, and maybe you didn't know about that, and boom, the, the remarks come and you just get sliced open. And so you don't want to give your opinion at all. Or, you ever do this? You forget an appointment that you had, or, or you made a wrong decision in the stock market or whatever, and uh, you just, you're in the car, and you're like, oh, you made a mistake, and you're like, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm an idiot! And you're just, you're just covering yourself with, with shame. Or... Uh, when maybe you've even given shame out when someone makes a condescending remarks or just gives you that look and you feel the contempt and you just feel shamed by being around a particular person. Or maybe you've been caught in an appearance flaw. I remember in seventh grade, I mean it was sixth grade, I had a crush on Kathy Violet. I also had a wart. Right here. I remember sitting there, hand in pocket. I still got my hands in my pocket, you know. And- <laughs> you know, and then I had to get glasses, oh Lord, you know, and then braces, forget it, you know, I mean, or maybe you have a disability, or your breasts aren't large enough, or your legs are too thin, or you're overweight, or you're underweight, or whatever, your hair's not the right color, your hair's falling out, but you know, and just the shame of just physical appearance, and what that can do to, to us as we walk around, we think every eye is on us and focused on that particular thing. Some of us have shame over past behavior, and it was sexual promiscuity, or abuse, or abortion, uh, or the way we hurt somebody else and we're insensitive. Teenagers, I mean, high school and uh, at teenage, junior high, high school years are, are vicious and shaming, because you don't join in the shaming, you'll be shamed. you got to act right, talk right, walk right, and uh, you're expected by the peer pressure to join in the shaming. And if you don't, you're going to be the next one shamed. And a it, it powerful controlling agent, and those of you who are like me, a little bit older in high school, you remember, in fact, it's amazing how many of us carry our high school, junior high years with us into our old age. We remember those events like they were yesterday, those shaming words or things said or things that happened. But, you know, uh, folks say to me, if, I, I, if people only knew what I do, or what I'm like behind closed doors, or the kind of wife I really am, or the kind of husband I really am, or the kind of kid I really am. And there's all kinds of shame we carry. Now, shame's not always bad. Because Adam and Eve are in shame here. And that's a healthy shame. Some folks don't have enough shame. In our culture, in America, in general, a lot of folks don't have any shame. It's like Romans chapter 1. you know, sin. Their consciences have been seared, and there's no shame at all for sin. That's one extreme. And... Um, but there's a, there's a healthy shame where I admit uh, my, my shame. I get in touch with it. I let it penetrate me I, about what I've done or the parts about me that I'm not so proud of. The, the stuff that maybe has been passed on from generation to generation in my family that is so much a part of me that as it flows out of me, it does bring me shame. And, and uh, to be aware and confess that, to let it penetrate me, to ponder it, and then to bring it to God uh, is a very good thing. It's a very healthy thing. In fact, I will argue that the extent to which you get a hold of your shame in a healthy way is the extent to which you will grasp the grace of God and the gospel. They are related. And, um, because shame is a very unpleasant emotion. It's one of the most unpleasant emotions. And what we most of us do is, or I said most of us, some of us do is we don't want it. We shove it down. I, we don't even want to think about it. We've got enough fig leaves mechanisms so that we don't have to deal with it. Some way to hide and run away from it. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And men, I think, tend to do this more than women in general. Just the generality, All right, Don't get crazy on me. But, there is a, a place of allowing it to penetrate so that it brings me to God. And then, this covering of God begins to make some sense. Now, you'll notice in verse 22, God comes after Adam and Eve. And God dresses them. It says in verse 21, Adam, I'm sorry, verse 21, the Lord God makes garments of skin for Adam and she, for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord covered them with garments that really worked. And he slew an animal, blood was shed, and the Lord covered them. Just like the father in the parable of the and son covered his son with his robe. And you cannot appreciate the covering of, you will, Or better said, you will appreciate the depth of that covering to the depth of which you understand your shame. There is a direct relationship. Adam and Eve surely appreciated that son, appreciated it, and glory in it. Now there's a story about a, uh, called the Mongolian peasant story. And during the days of Stalin in the former Soviet Union, uh, if you remember, he used to have literally millions of people confess the crimes they never committed. And they were sent to the gulag or killed. And so a, a visitor from the West asked one of the psychologists who was involved in that, "How did you get these people to confess the crimes they never committed?" And the psychologist said, "Oh, it's very easy. I just used the Mongolian peasant hypothesis." And so the guy says, "You know, what 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 is that all about?" And it goes something like this: He says, "We'd bring a person in to this big office with an oak, you know, oak desk, and we'd have a general sitting behind the table with all of his." you know, very dignified, powerful general with all of his you know, wards on him and medals and, and a very intimidating type office. And this person would feel like a little schmuck. And then we, the general would speak to them and say this, I have a million rubles in my desk drawer. Here, take a look, show him the million rubles. And he'd say, all these rubles are yours. And the guy goes, mine? Here he is in trial, you know, mine? Yep, on one condition. So the prisoner would say, well, what's the condition? He goes, you must press the small red button On the desk. And the guy says, Well, prisoner says, Well, what's going to happen when I press the small red button? He goes, An old man in Mongolia will die. And he goes, "Uh, He dies? The general says, Yeah, he dies at once, no pain. And the prisoner says, Well, what's he dying for? What has he done? He goes, The general says, That's not your business. Trust me, it's for the good of the people. All you need to know at the moment is press the button, the peasant dies, and you get the million rubles. So the man presses the button, and he takes the money and he goes home to live with the memory that for money he has killed a stranger who did him no harm. Now, he wouldn't have done it for a few hundred rubles, and he wouldn't have done it for even a 1,000 or 10,000, but a million, (sighs) who could refuse? And so the man knows in his heart that the amount of money made no difference in filings. He realized he killed an innocent stranger and so after five years, he commits suicide. And the psychologist said, at that point, the million rubles are stuffed in a sack under his bed. The state comes back and takes them the day of his funeral. But every day, according to the psychologist, he every, says everybody has a Mongolian peasant in their life. In other words, someone's harmed another or shamed another or something which they're ashamed above, of. And so the psychologist said, all I would do is dig around until I found their Mongolian peasant. And they're so ashamed of it, and I I would dangle it before them, what it was for them. And then finally, they would feel such wretchedness, such shame for who they are, they would confess to anything to somehow make payment for their shame. He goes, that's the Mongolian peasant thesis. Now, there is something about deep within all of us because of sin and rebellion against God that there is a deep shame. That's a proper shame of having run our own lives from God independently. But then there's an unhealthy shame which is that feeling about just not just what we've done, but it's an unhealthy shame, just who we are—that I'm 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 a nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm unworthy, I'm, I'm unacceptable. It's, it's kind of a heavy feeling many people carry. That I'm just I'm I'm like I'm slogging through a swamp, or my life is like going uphill because I'm carrying this heavy burden of shame. And uh, some of us feel it because we're trying to save the whole world. We're trying to fix everybody. And so we feel this incredible guilt. And other people, you know, we've got it because we're always comparing ourselves to somebody else. And they're richer, smarter, better looking. And we're not. And we feel shamed by that. Or, or you know, we're, we're ashamed of our families, our mom, our dad, our upbringing, whatever. We're ashamed of our family tree. But often it comes out of something's been imposed onto us from the outside. And sometimes, again, it's a secular culture that says you've got to be beautiful, rich, powerful. And we're not. And you feel shame because I'm not rising up to what I should be. Or, uh, you know, or, or even churches are sometimes can be very shame-based. I can use shame and get people to do a lot of things. In fact, it's much more easy to motivate by shame than by grace. As one person I read this past week. He said, I became a Christian and I felt worse. I, I was born again by grace. And I immediately was confronted with the fact that I'm not living like a born-again person should. And so the good news of grace, even though it was being verbally spoken about, became an instrument of shame. And I constantly was feeling worse than better. And it's very easy to very easily slip into being shame-based, even as a fellowship, than being grace And even family, grace-based. Family systems can be such that, you know, we don't measure up to whatever, you know, our, our, our dad or grandfather who passed away expected of us. And we can be in our 60s and 70s, and we're carrying that. And because there was this this expectation of an ideal of what we were going to be, what we were going to do, and we haven't met it. And even though it's invisible, maybe even never spoken. John Quincy Adams was the second president of the United States. And this guy was a secretary of state before he was president. He was a senator to Holland, to Russia, to Great Britain. But at the end of his life, he wrote that he felt his life had been a waste. He'd done nothing. He'd prayed to God and God hadn't answered him, and he'd done nothing good as a result of his existence. Because his parents had such a standard for him. I mean, the guy was the second president of the United States. He followed George Washington. He was secretary of state. And here he is lamenting that he's done nothing with his life. He's been a loser. But it's interesting because he did that to his own kids. He, they, they were special. God, God had called them to a moral level of excellency that if you trace his family line, they've done studies on it, that some, his children, many became... Alcoholics committed suicide while others were incredibly driven, stepped over people become very powerful. But that shame led to different uh, responses. People deal with shame differently. Some are in total denial of it and escape wildly from shame by sinning in a brazen, in-your-face way. And uh, it's their desperate attempt to run away from shame is to sin wildly. And... um, In fact they take pride in being so awful Uh, some of you know what that's about and but acting on that kind of shame is a desperate way to escape from it others become super high achievers uh highly driven uh material possessions power position but it's a way of saying i've made it everyone look up to me don't ever put your your nose down on me again i'll never be ashamed i'll never be in that position again and if you read biographies much, you know that some of the most powerful men in history have been driven by running from shame. It's very interesting. All going back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, shame's a big part of everybody's life. And it can cause us to, do, to fall into a pit of despair and really function in a very unhealthy way. But it's really meant, because there, there is a healthy shame, it's meant to drive us to God. It's meant to drive us for our need for a Savior to get clothed in a righteousness that's not my own. To get clothed with a forgiveness, with a love, with an acceptance that comes from out there that comes to me. It's, that's what it's meant to do, to drive me in my despair to Him. Now, which brings me to point two, which is this. Not just understanding our shame a bit, but also grace and Christmas and the healing of our shame. Christmas, God came in such a way that he was shamed and he bore our shame in the first Christmas, the incarnation, so that we would be delivered from shame and set free to be the men and the women he's called us to be. People living in shame are not their true selves. They're living out another person to prove something, to escape and run from something. But Jesus came to forgive, cleanse, fill us with power. And set us free from shame. That's what Christmas is all about. And so in Genesis 3-9, what happens here with, with um, Adam and Eve, they're hiding in shame and guilt and sin. And I love verse uh, 8 and 9 because God knows they're hiding. God knows they're in shame. And it says, the Lord walks in the cool of the garden as they're hiding, putting in all these self-defensive ways. Who knows what was going on? And then it says, the Lord says in verse 9, where are you? He knows where they are, you know, but the Lord's saying, come out. You're hiding. You're living falsely. You're living a lie. You're putting on a show. These fig leaves will never be sufficient to cover you. And God says, verse 9, where are you? He says, I was afraid, so, so I hid. But you see in this text, what we see in the incarnation in, in Christmas, Genesis, Ma- Matthew 1, God's passionate for you. He's so passionate for you and saying, where are you to come out of your shame and guilt and hiddenness and fear that here he's going after Adam and Eve. He doesn't throw them aside, but God's so after you that he actually came and visited earth in the person of his son. He he aggressively came to this planet. That's why we're celebrating the greatest or one of the greatest events in human history, Christmas, the entrance of God into the human race. And in grace, in verse 21, God takes Adam and Eve in their rebellion, their sin, their filth, their shame, they made a wreck of it, and he clothes them. It's a wonderful moment. And he wraps them in his arms, and he adopts them now as his children. And just like in the parable of the prodigal son, the father runs and shames himself in humility and takes his son and clothes him with his cloak, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, kills a fatted calf, and has music and dancing. But the word in verse 9 is, come out. Come on out. You see, many of us hate ourselves, and we believe the lie that, you know, I don't deserve to be here, which is true. You don't deserve to be here, but I'm not worthy to be here. And, um, uh, you know, God says, no, no, you don't understand. The gospel is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have nothing left to prove to anybody. You don't have to show anybody. you. My love for you is sufficient and my approval is enough. You don't have to go run after it anymore. I'm going to cover all of your shame, past, present, and future. You're loved. You're honored. You're precious in my sight. I've come to set you free. Now, the, um, the experience of being accepted is the beginning of healing for shame. The experience of being accepted. I'm talking about not just knowing in your head. I'm talking about an experience of being accepted. Because many people hear it for years in church about grace and Christmas and the cross, but it's not an experience. But it's the experience, the increasingly deep experience of being accepted that is what is the beginning of healing of this whole shame thing. Now, I'm talking about we all carry shadows and other ugly parts of ourselves. We have goals we didn't meet, you know, we made mistakes, we committed sins, or we didn't get everything done, we have envious, we have stuff coming out of us, we hate. I'm talking about, I've done things, thought things, yes, there's shame, but there is grace, and grace is about a gift. And uh, the that I'm accepted even when I'm most undeserving. And it's one of the great mysteries here of Christmas is that grace is about a gift. Christmas is about a gift. Friends, we've got the greatest message in the universe to proclaim this december and that is christmas is about grace and a gift for shame guilt sin and it's not just about pardon it's about acceptance it's about power it's about god exploding in your heart a gratitude that will that will change your whole life you see jesus willingly took our place of shame took our punishment bore the fury of wrath that we deserve he bore it so that you don't have to he was shame so that you don't have to live in shame he bore punishments. You don't have to be punished. You might be free. He took death that you might have life. He was crucified that you might be resurrected. And he, he, the grace tells me, I'm worth it. You're worth it. You're worth him coming. I'm not worth it. You are worth it. He wouldn't have come if you weren't. You know what the father could have said in the parable of the prodigal son to his elder brother? Let me tell you something, elder brother. You think this younger guy's a bum and he's not worth it? He may not deserve grace, because grace is a gift that's not deserving. He doesn't deserve it, but he is worthy of pardon, and he's worthy of acceptance. See, one of the great glories, maybe no one else has ever given that to you, but God does. And Christmas says everybody's worthy of having their guilt and shame removed. Everyone. And, uh, you know, what your life could be, the story is told of a guy named Race Hoss Sample. He's from Texas. His mom was a prostitute and an alcoholic. She beat him all the time, up to the point he was 11 years old. She told him he was an animal, he was a no-good bum, and the mom resented him and hated her own son. He ran away at 11 years old, and he was full of rage, ends up in the Army in World War II. He's always getting into fights, assault and battery, and um, ends up in a Texas state penitentiary for 28 years. I'm sorry, for 30 years. And he was in the worst penitentiary, and he was always getting put into solitary confinement for assault and battery. But there was one punishment that was the worst for what they called their untamed prisoners. And this fellow, Race Haas Sample, was one of their untamed prisoners. So he was often put into what was called the tomb. And the tomb was actually a four by eight foot basement cell with no windows and no light. And so it was completely dark. There was two steel plates for a door, and a slab, a solid slab of concrete that was his bed, and a missing slab in the floor to pass for a toilet, and the stench would linger on from occupant to occupant in absolute darkness. This is where they stuck a prisoner who forgot to grovel low enough, and they would lock him in there for 28 days at a time with one cup of water and one biscuit a day, and one meal of mush every six days to keep him alive." Some of you are saying, I'm never going to visit Texas. I know. I was feeling the same way. Now, he spent a lot of time, Reis Haas, uh, in this tomb. But one time, in his 16th year of captivity, he went in, and he was so freaking out by the darkness that he began to weep and cry out to God, help me, help me. And he writes in his memoir, that array of light I saw slowly began to, I began to say, and he writes about the a long thing here, but a soft light entered the room like a 40-watt light bulb. And I was engulfed by a presence, and I felt it reassure me and comfort me, and I breathed freely. I'd never felt such a well-being, so good in all my life, safe and loved. And a voice called from the pit of my belly, you are not an animal. You are a human being. Don't you worry about a thing. You must tell them about me. And after that, he says God was real. And he found in the abyss of the burning hell a, a new life. And so he actually gained five pounds when he came out. Now, when he walked out of prison in 1972, at 9.45 in the morning, he had $10 in his pocket. Now, after this, he wrote a book, his memoirs, and he became the first ex-convict ever to work out of the governor's office, the first to serve as a probation officer, the first to serve on a staff of the state legal bar association. He was given a Liberty Bell Award and was named the Outstanding Crime Prevention Citizen of Texas in 1981. He received a full pardon and actually changed his name to Alfred Sample. I mention this story because it's a sample of what happens to a person who really experiences the healing power of grace. He became a new man. He became a different man. He had a conversion. Listen, some of us shame people, and I've seen this a lot among, especially teenagers, we shame others because we're ashamed. So we're looking somehow to get it off. In fact, if you're one who's condescending, people that shame others, it probably means you carry around a lot of shame yourself. But do you realize what your life could possibly be like if you were not carrying shame? Can you just think about that for a minute? What would you be like if you knew you were totally, not just pardoned, forgiven of your sin, you were totally accepted, totally loved, and the power of the Spirit now living within you to be whoever God's asked you to be, and whatever he's asked you to do, You know, it doesn't matter what people think. Not in a bad way, you know what I'm talking about. You're just free of shame to be the true you whom God called you to be. What would your life be like? What would you do? Where would you go? Well, today, friends, this Christmas, I want to invite you to respond to this. Number two, grace and the healing of our shame. The problem is we're ashamed that we have shame. But here's what I'm gonna do. Whatever God's speaking into your heart right now, we're gonna have some people come for we're gonna have some people up here to pray for you. And we're gonna have the worship team, why don't you come on forward? And uh, Linda's gonna lead us on a new song of worship. And I'm gonna ask you to think about these three things. And as we as we're in worship, we're gonna have some folks up here. In fact, why don't you guys come forward too? Why don't we all stand, all right? Let's all stand. And folks, we're going to pray for people. I want you to come on forward too. Wherever you are. Okay. I want to give you three things to think about. Some of us don't like to feel any shame. And I know I was one of those people for many years. And I had my way of running away from it. But it really limited God's work in my heart and understanding grace and the gospel. Some of us need to come and ask God for courage to look at our own stuff and shame. Others of you, you need to come and ask God for a revelation of being accepted because you're just so down on yourself all the time. And you are carrying like this invisible burden. It's like you're slogging up a mountain every single Just carry around a heavy burden. Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest." And some of you are in that. Again, it may be because of stuff that you've done or stuff that's happened to you growing up. Whatever it might be, who cares? You have to sort. You have to sort out what's healthy, unhealthy. Forget it. Just ask the Lord for revelation. You want to come into a revelation of his acceptance and love of you in Christ. If you don't know Christ, you want to come and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ, then do that too. But for many of us who've known Christ for a while, we carry that, and God wants to take that off of you. and set you free to be the man the woman he's called you to be. But I don't know about you, but I want to be a, I want to be a person and a vessel that gives grace to other people. When I see myself and I shame somebody, It's very sad. And some of you may want to come forward and ask God, help me to be a vessel that releases grace to people and not shame. By my looks, by my words, by my body language. Because the truth is, I don't think most people feel that around me. They probably feel more condescension or shame. And I don't want to be, I want to ask God to change me. So what I'd like us to do is... is This is one of our Christmas gifts to you. The Bible speaks about the power of anointing with oil. And it's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's an act of faith as we do it, as people respond. But it's in Mark chapter 6 and James as people were, the apostles went about healing and anointing with oil and healing the sick. And uh, we're going to have some folks up here to really put oil, anoint you with oil, and just pray for you. And I'm going to ask you, make your brief request, whatever it might be. and, And then we'll pray for you and ask God to grant you freedom, to be the man, the woman he's called you to be. Please, it is never too late. It is not. And it's a process, and it takes time. And let the Spirit of God just invade your soul. Listen, a lie from hell would be to be ashamed to come forward. It would be a lie. So please, we're gonna, we're gonna, the worship team is going to lead us in worship. And Linda's going to teach us a very beautiful song she taught us at the last prayer meeting. And as you're ready, just come on forward, and we're going to pray for you. All right? And um, let's just spend some time in the presence of God. Let His love envelop you. And come to Him. Respond to Him. All right? Amen. Let's sing.
1: Pass.